Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks again for joining Charles Roberts and me for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, if you've been listening on a semi-regular basis, you know we have been talking a lot about authority and who or what should be the voice or the rule of authority. But today I want to sort of expand on that and dig a little deeper. And the question is, your body, whose choice is it? What happens to your body? Now, you may think that you already know what we're going to talk about. But Charles, that isn't, we're not going to just focus on whether or not people should have abortions or not, which is where we usually hear my body, my choice. What are we going to get behind today? Well, as Dr. Rushduni uh, never failed to remind us that the, the, the bottom line issue in just about everything in life is who or what is sovereign, who or what decides what is right or wrong, and what is the foundation of law. All of those things are wrapped up in the same sort of thing. And so when people say, well, it's my body, my choice, you don't have a right to tell me what to do with my body. Well, I suppose on a very superficial level, that's true. But the foundation of that, at least the way modern people talk about this, and when I say modern people, I mean just about anybody who's been educated in the government school since the 1940s or 50s, which is a lot of people. The, the foundational assumption is I am sovereign. You know, I have absolute authority and I will define for myself and maybe even for you, if you let me, what is right or what is wrong and what should be done with my body, what should be put into it or taken out of it. So I think this goes to the very heart of the issue is what is behind the statement that it's my body and my choice. And the reason that I think it's timely is that you'll see people protesting mandatory vaccinations, mandatory passports, things like that. And some of the signs will say, whatever happened to my body, my choice. Now, <laughs> that would be fine if the statement had any sort of true bearing in authority or what is true. So if we're going to say that's not a valid argument, your body, your choice, only on the basis that the baby inside you isn't really your body. Okay, so if I say my body, my choice with regards to getting an injection, then the question becomes, is my consent or lack of consent the highest good and the proper basis for making a decision? Yes, and uh, I think I'm thinking of uh, even a, a deeper root of this, at least in contemporary culture. I remember when I was an undergraduate student, a book came out that has since been rendered into several of subsequent editions. But this book was, I don't know if you could say it was maybe one of the uh, operating manuals of the feminist movement at the time, and I'm talking about in the early and mid-1970s, but it was called Our Bodies, Ourselves. And it was sort of a um, an operating manual for women who were not happy with the standard Christian point of view about how women should function in marriage or in singleness or whatever. But you see, even with the title of that book, the, the starting point 
is totally incorrect uh, from the standpoint of God's word and God's law. Because God's word tells us that we are not our own. You know, we, we belong to God. He is sovereign over us. Now, there are various levels of other types of relationships where we, and we do have some accountability to the civil government in some areas and to church government and to the family, of course, is the foundation. But the operating assumption of that book, and I think this is behind a lot of the other stuff that we see today, whether it's relating to abortion or medical procedures, is no, there, there is no sovereign God who has absolute authority over me and what I can think and what I can do. Okay, there, maybe there's the universe, you know, this power, this force, but all that wants to do is, is make me feel good about myself. I, it's, it, there is no absolute authority over me except me and my own choice, and the book I mentioned is a prime example of that. So maybe people can get um, exemptions from the universe. I didn't think that anybody would ask the universe to say, <laughs> I don't think you need to get this or whatever. But see, it really goes down to this idea of consent. So if we believe we have the right to consent or not to things, and if we consent, it makes it okay. And people might say, well, of course, consent matters, but it opens up or reveals the slippery slope. So can I consent to things that God's law word prohibits? Well, now we're in the area of assisted suicide. I don't want to live anymore. I consent for you to end my life. I decide that it's okay to have my marriage be an open marriage. And so as long as both couples consent, then it's okay. So that elevates consent to making man the determiner of right and wrong as regards himself, which sounds remarkably similar to Genesis 3.5. And the reason it does is because they are joined at the hip, so to speak. Well, you know, Genesis 3.5 is the whole foundation, uh, and the unfolding history of fallen man is the result of that. Uh, my own opinion, I will choose for myself to decide whether God's word concerning the eating of this fruit is true or not. So one of the things that Dr. Rushduni pointed out in his discussion of this is the fact that this problem operates on a, a number of different levels. And, and although it may start out or it may exist in what seems to be a reasonable area, say, for example, I'll decide what sort of medical procedure I can or won't have. The problem is, is that when, when people elevate that as an absolute voice of authority, uh, the, the idea that I, I am the sovereign in terms of assent, it eventually gets extended to other areas because implicit in it is the authority of man and humanism. And as Rushduni pointed out in the article that we sort of have in the background of this discussion, is that that morphed over time into many different manifestations. Plato talked about this. The movements associated with Stalin and Hitler, all of that had to do with popular assent or the idea of the foundation of humanism and the sobering point that he makes in his discussion is the fact that sooner or later, this leads to misery, it leads to tyranny, and it leads to degradation. So you have a pendulum, and of course, it swings. Now, the scripture tells us that we're to be on the straight and narrow path, and it's not all that wide. On the one hand, we have the state being or the divine right of kings or the elite rulers, that's one. And on the other side is the anarchistic, nobody can tell me what to do. And as long as we argue consent, 
According to Rush Dooney in the essay we're referencing, which he entitled The Myth of Consent, that we really don't have consent in the sense that what we say goes, because if you're under the authority of God, and this would be true for believer or non-believer, because just because somebody has a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't suddenly give God authority. God had it all along. So there is no such thing truly as two consenting adults, or you can't interfere with this because we're consenting. If you divorce it from God's law has blessings and cursings, and it's not like just because you can do it, it means that it will turn out well for you. Yeah, and uh, in in many states of these United States in the early history, um, the foundation of civil law was biblical law, God's law. So, for example, here where I live, for many, many decades, going back maybe centuries, there were laws on the books prohibiting sodomy and homosexual activity, among other things. Now, something like that could not be prosecuted, say, in 1920 or in whatever state we may be talking about, without, of course, you know, due process. And God's law itself says in in that case, and uh, with many other violations of his law, you know, it has to be prosecuted on the testimony of at least uh, two witnesses. So the idea that, okay, and I'm thinking here of that popular phrase today, I do not consent. You know, you, you will not do this medical procedure on me. I do not consent. That sounds very brave and noble. And maybe, again, in one small area, it, it could be considered that. But what about the, uh, the, the person who wants to practice some vile, immoral activity? I don't consent to your, your law on the books that prohibits me from doing this, and I'm going to go right ahead with it. The problem is God turns over societies and families and individuals to the preferences of their so-called consent. And over time, whether it be in a lifetime or a period of decades or centuries, they reap the benefits or the whirlwind of evil that comes about. The history of the human race, the history of individuals, is people always thinking they know more than God, that they are above and beyond his law, beyond good and evil, to use Nietzsche's language, that um, they will define for themselves what these things are. And the problem is, by the time the, the evil and the misery that is foisted on the rest of us and the rest of the world is realized, it's too late. So I remember we've talked at on other occasions that Christians, of all people, need to be self-consciously and deliberately obeying God, which, of course, means they need to know what God thinks on a particular subject. And it's very fashionable today and I'm sure you've run into it as a pastor, to say, you know, there are things that God just doesn't care about, okay? And 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 to go down that road means that, well, then somebody is going to care about it. And so when you said it became fashionable to say, I do not give my consent, well, it depends on who you say that to. If that person or that institution doesn't care about your consent one way or the other, you might as well say any number of things. And, you know, those, they're not the magic words. So the reason that this has come to light as we're recording this, there is a protest movement going on in Canada. And I'm all for what's going on, but my hope is that it is grounded on God's word. So for someone to object to what a government is doing should not be, this inconveniences me, 
I don't like it. I mean, quite frankly, so what that you're inconvenienced or you don't like it because there'd be probably many examples of things that you approve of that other people don't like or are inconvenienced by. Therefore, if our arguments for approving something, disproving something, going along with something, not going along with something are not rooted in scripture that we really can't say, thus saith the Lord, as opposed to thus saith Andrea or thus saith Charles or any other name you want to put in there, we are going to go down roads that don't bring about true resolution. Yeah, you know, it's one thing if you're in the the local social club in your neighborhood and somebody says, well, I'm going to nominate you to be the next president. You know, well, I don't consent to that, so don't do it. You know, that's one where area where we could say that, okay, we, we know what we're talking about there. But in the example that you used with the, um, the protests going on in Canada as we speak, as noble as a, the sentiment may be, the, the problem is, is that the idea behind it is that I am sovereign over my own body. And in the name of me being a human being, you, will, you must not do this or we will resist this. Well, as, as Dr. Rushdie pointed out time and time again, the ultimate expression of humanism is the state. Uh, eventually, a humanistic worldview, a humanistic society always gravitates toward a centralized, often tyrannical authority. In, in the essay that we're referring to here, he, he makes just, and I'm going to quote it again in a few minutes, not this sentence, but he says, apart from the sovereignty of God, society has no real principle of law and order. And on the surface, that may sound ridiculous to people. But it's absolutely true in the sense that in terms of an abiding, stable law system that is to the benefit of the human race, if it's not grounded in God's law word, it is problematic, and sooner or later it will create issues. And the case that we're referring to, I think, is a prime example. Because if you are grounding your refusal to consent to something that you think violates your body in the name of your of your humanistic authority, then the state can simply come back and say, oh, no, we have more authority than you do, so you've just got to take it. If you don't like it, then we will throw you in jail or kill you. But it would be interesting to see, you know, if all the people involved in that protest and any others, if it was all done in the, if they, if they were quoting all various passages of God's law. And I, I you know, I have, um, acquaintances who are chronicling a lot of what's happened who live in Canada. And there seems to be a true Christian element, at least for some of the leadership there. But the interesting part about the idea of trying to fix a problem without getting the ax to the root Mm -hmm. is that you might solve the immediate problem, but as you pointed out, leave the door open for something else. And so it it shows me that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Rebuild the foundations. We're told to stand on the rock that everything else is sinking sand. So if we don't have the perspective that I'm going to base my decisions, I'm going to base my perspectives and what I'm going to advocate for or not in terms of God's law word, then I'm going to have to go by something else. And so uh, I think the message of our time is antinomianism continues to breed problems and following God's law. It's not like it's always going to be hunky-dory, but there's a way through to say, how do we build on a strong foundation? 
we are seeing the results of the denial or the failure on the part of many Christian churches to recognize the evil of antinomianism and especially pietism in the way that, that many and perhaps even most churches have responded to the whole COVID narrative. And it's been interesting to me. And, and, and on top of that, the, the, the woke, you know, political uh, stuff that's been going down and, and in a surprising number of supposedly conservative churches and seminaries. What's interesting about that is that there has been a reaction on the part of some who have said, well, wait a minute, you know, we're losing everything that we have as Christians. And I know in the case of uh, a very popular video that's made, been making the rounds about how one particular, again, supposedly conservative Christian denomination has pretty much buckled under the weight of these various, uh, what I'll say, progressive left-wing political forces and its association with the shutdowns and everything. And in the case of the, the people who have awakened to what's been happening, they have traced the problem, uh, and get this, to the influence of a pietistic spirituality and antinomianism. Mm-hmm. How about that? And I've, I've seen some of this, this material that has been uh, influencing people, and, and good, that's a good thing. But I'm sitting there thinking to myself, people, where have you been? I know somebody who started talking about this 50 years ago, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. You know, let me just quote one more thing from the article. Uh, Rushdoony says, the myth of consent supposedly stresses man's responsibility. And again, that's part of the, the noble aspect of it sounds to us. But then he says, in actuality, it destroys it because it makes an untenable claim of sovereignty for man. And that's what eventually leads to the problem. You know, if somebody who knows what they're talking about tells you, as you have bought this land and you're going to build a house, well, you, you better not use this material to build your house because over time it won't work. And you're like, oh, no, no, I, I, I can get this at a much better price. So you build a house and you live in it 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And then what he told you comes to pass and the house just can't stand because uh, you use the wrong material. That's a good analogy. And it's sort of, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but it sort of segues into what I consider a related concept. So we started off talking about consent, all right? And Rush Dooney identifies it as a myth because it won't stand in the long run. But I sort of got the idea, this is a lot like what's going on today, you must get a shot, like the eminent domain idea that the state at any level, local, state, or federal, has a right to say, we're going to use your land for something else. And so there are people who have been paid money to give up their home, give up their land so that a freeway can go in. And then there are other people who say, no, this is my land. I don't want it. And so they resist. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that depending on your point of view, if you would really like to have a freeway to cut your or a parkway, wherever you are in the country, and you'd like to cut your commute time down by half, well, you think this is a proper, you know, proper thing for the state to be able to do this, and that person should just get over it. But the more you examine the idea of eminent domain, which we usually think of in terms of real property, we realize there's a claim to sovereignty there. And it dawned on me that what a lot of governments around the world are doing are claiming eminent domain over our body, which of course they don't have. That doesn't mean that they won't continue along the lines of what they've been doing with real property, with land 
for hundreds of years. Everywhere that humanism has been the operating foundation of a society and the one that we're most familiar with is our own American society as it exists in all the different states that make up our country. Sooner or later, it gravitates toward the type of thing that we are seeing today in one form or another, where the state sees itself as God walking on the earth. And people need to understand that the aspects or the marks of divinity are not casting lightning bolts out of your fingertips. The marks of divinity are the claims to sovereignty in terms of taxation, in terms of the ownership of property, in terms of defining what is right and wrong, what is good or evil. And we see this at every turn that the state has taken that authority onto itself. And even in societies, say, in fascist Italy, uh, National Socialist Germany, communist Bolshevik uh, Soviet Union, even where that has become coercive, it nevertheless began you know, as a movement of humanism and a denial of the absolute authority of God's law word. So when we make our arguments against something, sometimes we get pragmatic. If I said the Bible says you can't do this, people are going to look and say, oh, she's just some sort of, you know, Bible thumper or something like that. But if we then default to arguments, and I hear people all the time, this is not how a democracy should be run. Well, it just shows to me that they have elevated democracy. So that really must be their religious tenet that says you can't do this, except all that democracy says is the majority rules. So I guess as soon as you get 51%, then suddenly whatever you're objecting to, you'll need a new argument. And whether it's a monarchy or whether it's a constitutional republic, whatever it is, we're only obligated under God to obey that which is in conformity to his law. And if we are being subjected to things like this is not something that we would do, you know, bricks without straw, then we pray for relief and we work for relief. In other words, we must always proclaim the crown rights of Jesus Christ. If I may speak for both of us and our podcast, let us offer a a word of sympathy to any of our listeners or any who may hear this, that you've been hoodwinked, you've been blindfolded, you've been misled by the the, the school where you graduated from high school, perhaps, or the pastor of your church, or your favorite so-called conservative TV news broadcaster. Because what what has passed for democracy in this country, and I don't mean you know in the past 10 years, we can go back to the 1950s or the 40s or whatever, you won't find any foundation for such an idea in God's law word. And matter of fact, you really won't even find it uh, in the writings of our founding fathers. They absolutely did not want a democracy. There were people in the world at that time who did, and they're the people who brought us the French Revolution and the reign of terror. So the idea of democratic values, well, again, that might pass muster in a society where human beings are the measure of all things. But the thing that we want to know is what does God's law word say is right and wrong, true or false? And if people are not willing to live by that standard, either they themselves or their children or their children's children will be facing a very bad time indeed. Unless, of course, you just simply give up and you know become a, a drone, uh, a worker bee, a worker ant of the state, just like the, you know, the, the prawls and the people in uh, George Orwell's 1984. 
Now, some people will tell you that now is all that matters. So when you bring up things like church history or you bring up things like early American history, they sort of have been given the cartoon version, the the cliff notes on what it was all about. And one of the things that why, why the word sovereignty ends up being problematic for some people is because we've come to the conclusion that a monarchy would always be bad. And a monarchy is a sovereign, therefore bad. Well, Jesus Christ is king. So we can't say a monarchy is bad. However, when our republic was founded, and then with the the efforts of the Constitutional Convention, they made a deliberate effort not to put the word sovereignty into any of the documents. In other words, the prevailing opinion is God is sovereign. Rush Juni tells the story of, I think it was John Quincy Adams, many years afterwards, um, maybe even post his time as a president, was objecting to the idea that the states were saying they had sovereignty over the federal government, that this is a term reserved for God alone, which then reveals the fact that no matter how good your initial steps were to create a government that would truly honor God and allow people freedom, If the populace is not subject to God's law word, then the document becomes an empty shell. In other words, we'll still talk about the Constitution, but it will change meaning as people's definitions of things change. I remember many years ago, a church where I was pastor, a church in the Reformed and Calvinistic tradition was populated with quite a few people who did not really accept that theological perspective. How they got to be that way is another story. But there was a man who actually was an elder in that church who uh, really had some serious reservations about the doctrines of predestination and election. And I had many, many discussions and outright arguments with him, unfortunately, over a number of years. And I'll never forget his constant refrain was, that in terms of the decision about becoming a Christian, quote, getting saved, unquote, he would say, God limits his sovereignty there and allows man to make the decision. I'm happy to say that this man learned the truth some years later, but that's a prime example of how uh, human beings, they don't like this idea innately, that they are accountable in every aspect to God Almighty, and even in terms of who inherits eternal life both now and in the world to come and who doesn't is a decision completely left up to God. Now, one of the ways that this plays out in real time, if there's even the slightest door opening for sovereignty of man in any area, is that it eventually leads to the type of society that we've been talking about, whether it be on a large scale or or an individual scale. Now, people will hear this and say, you know, uh, Sounds to me like you're trying to set up a theocracy, and you're going to have the uh, Puritan New England Council where they're going to bring everybody. Well, a lot of that's just a lot of nonsense anyway. It never really happened. But no, the foundation of what we're talking about here, as given in Holy Scripture, is the Christian man or woman governing themselves first and foremost according to God's law. That's the foundation. Now, our society in many of our states and communities over decades and decades operated along that line. And there are plenty who didn't. But the point is, in a godly society that's ordered according to God's standards, there are means of dealing with that. So the average person is going to say, you know, I know my neighbor left their front door open, but I'm not going to go in there and steal anything from them, even though they've got things I, I like. Because, number one, God's word tells me not to. And 
number two, I might get caught, whatever the, the thing is. But the point is there's something innate in people where there is a broad consciousness that God's law is foundational to a productive, orderly society. That's going to be the first thing. But where that's completely thrown aside, well, then you're left with the chaos. But in that godly society where it is practiced, for the people who do want to violate that, who just simply will not govern themselves according to God's law, that's where you have the stipulations and the punishments for violation of God's law. And again, to to humanistic man, it sounds horrible that various types of things that we just tolerate left and right today are punishable by death according to God's law. And the Lord simply says to us in so many words, okay, if you will not accept my means, which are the true means of the control of the criminal population in your community, then you will deal with the consequences. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And I can tell you, living where I live, the number of homeless encampments that are being subsidized and quite frankly, for some odd reason, encouraged by civil governments is proof of the fact that a lot of people have no idea how you would possibly deal with this. I can see conversations that happen on message boards for neighborhoods, and they're like, we just need the right mayor, or we just need them to do something, because they think the only way this can be solved is if civil government does it. Well, of course, if civil government has no desire to rectify the situation, that they'll continue to get paid and their agencies will continue to be staffed and funded, then there becomes the accountability to whoever has the most power, whether that's in the ability to cancel your license, uh, deplete your bank account, or just levy an extra tax. And so I think for Christians, and I'm, I'm thinking that's predominantly who is going to be listening to this, we've got to get away from what we find likable or pleasant. So when I hear a lot of people say, I just don't like that, you know, as if that is a valid basis on which to operate. And, and you brought up predestination and election and this idea that God limits his sovereignty to well, as soon as God limits his sovereignty, then he's not sovereign, right? If he's going to share it, right. then he doesn't have the right for overruling it. And I have some very dear people who love the Lord. I believe they do, but cannot fathom the idea that they didn't have something to do with their salvation and they don't want to give it up. They can't accept the fact that God chose them for no apparent reason. I um, have in previous podcasts, referred to the existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and the tremendous influence that his writings had on uh, earlier generations that in some ways have lent themselves to where we find ourselves today. And one of the things about his philosophy that he promoted and adhered to, at least he tried to, was the idea of radical human freedom, that I am absolutely free because it's not only that there is no God, there cannot be a God. And so, therefore, I, every choice I make is a sovereign choice for me as an individual. You know, man stands alone, this, his, this heroic character, choosing in the face of meaninglessness. Well, you know, the, the problem with that is, is that if that's the case, if that really is the case, then you, your husband, everybody in your neighborhood and my neighborhood are an absolute threat to me. And so 
I, you know, if we're all little individual sovereign gods making our own choices, then I can just as easily decide, well, I'm going to blow your brains out just because maybe that's what I want to do today. And if that sounds familiar to any of our listeners, maybe you saw it on the news the last couple of nights because that's what's been happening. But, you know, um, Dr. Rostini makes the point concerning that is that, and I'm quoting here, the result, whether in politics or art, is a program of rebellion, revolution, and negation. And that's the necessary course of the modern world, rebellion, revolution, and negation, as long as it remains faithful to its humanistic faith. And it may start out, in an era, as in the case of the philosopher I just mentioned, where there are still some prevailing Christian values. So maybe on the surface, it doesn't seem uh, anything more than the, the, the curious musings of some eggheaded philosopher. But as it gains momentum and wide acceptance, and that's where it leads to where we find ourselves today. As uh, I used to have a bumper sticker years ago on my car, God's law or chaos. And right. that, that choice remains the main one. And the other bumper sticker that would be good to have along that would be Reed Rush Dooney, which yeah, right. Cal yes. has that. I, I still laugh because I, I always wonder what people think when they're driving along and see somebody's bumper sticker that says Reed Rush Dooney. I guess the curious will do a Google search now or something like that. That's right. But, so this is sort of the challenge based on what you said and based on what we've discussed. People need to know that their perspectives, their philosophy, their decisions, and the things that they will advocate for are consistent with God's word. Because you said, what is this going to be a theocracy? Well, yeah, I suppose we could have had this discussion around the time of Samuel. That is exactly what the Hebrews didn't want. They, they, they wanted to be like everybody else. Everybody else had a ruler and probably had pomp and circumstance and this apparency of being protected. Why would the Hebrew people want something other than the creator of the universe who had proven his care and love for them many times over? Because part and parcel with God's law are requirements and things that we must do. And the guarantee isn't always that when you do this, it's the most safe and secure thing you can do. The fact that we'll have opposition is a given. Jesus told us that they hated me, they'll hate you. But too many people want to hear they hated me, but somehow now we've become acceptable. And our primary goal is to say, oh, no, 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 we don't want a theocracy. Would you rather have a theocracy? In other words, rule by God's law, and God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Or would you rather have some humanistic dictator who was apparently elected but now is sure that he trumps everybody in terms of being able to make decisions? Yes, and as we have had occasion to mention in other podcasts, theocracy is unavoidable. It is an inescapable fact the question is, who is going to be your, quote, theocrat? It, it's going to be God Almighty of Holy Scripture or some pagan deity. or and, and if it's that, then that inevitably leads us to where we've been talking about, which is the, the divinized state. That is simply unavoidable. And again, the starting point that, we're, that we're, I think we're trying to get across to folks 
is in any of these kind of discussions, whether it have to be with the, the so the, the sovereignty of your yourself over your own body, uh, those kind of words, the starting point is very crucial as to the validity of what you're saying and where it ultimately will lead you. And one of the prime examples of this that just recently came to my mind is in the issue, say, for example, of education. I've known homeschoolers over the years uh, when my wife and I were homeschooling our children. I remember having a conversation whenever I run into other homeschoolers. Well, why do you homeschool? That was always a very keen interest to me. Oh, because, you know, the school district where we're in, they have a lot of drugs and they have a lot of violence in the school and, and this sort of thing. Then there were some who actually were not religious at all. They just, you know, whatever their motivation was. I, don't, I didn't run into that many people, even among Christians, who had this explanation. Almighty God in his law places the responsibility of educating my children on myself and my wife or my husband. We are charged by God as a duty in the family to do this. That's why we educate our children at home. And for Christians who are past the time in their life where they're raising children, maybe they look back and they say, well, I think we kind of blew it there. And maybe that's why we're experiencing some of the things we are in terms of family issues. It's very possible to not so much redeem your bad decision, but to learn from it and find people who now with children are eager for their children to be educated as Christians. So make it a point to help a homeschooling family financially if in fact they're struggling or provide scholarship money to a good Christian school so that a family that wants a Christian education can have it. You see, people will put their money where they consider it will do the most good. That's how most people will make financial investment decisions. But because a lot of our money is taken from us under the guise of taxation or inflation, a lot of people think like, well, there's not much we can do. There's a tremendous amount we can do if we recognize that the vehicle that God has given us in his law is the tithe. God wants us to take what he gives us. And before anybody else gets their hands on it, we should say a certain percentage of this belongs to God. And of course, you don't mail God a check, but you put it towards things that are um, along the lines of teaching people and preparing people to be faithful. And I think that's what a lot of people could do right now. In other words, if your money's, you know, the value of your money is going away, well, then take what you have now and put it towards something that's going to honor God, further the kingdom, and do something for future generations. Yes, uh, the news media here lately has been filled with uh, stories about people who've gotten themselves in the difficulty because they've made financial contributions to the protesters in Canada who are protesting the vaccine mandates. But uh, the fact is, one of the most challenging things you can do, one of the things that really declares where you stand is tithing. Because that, again, as I said a few moments ago, the, the declaration about who owns your money, who has a say over your resources, that is a declaration of sovereignty and divinity. And for the, you know, the Christian, that means that we must, without fail, or at least endeavor not to fail, recognize that God has the absolute say over our pocketbooks. And I would just like to wind things up for my part and remind people 
that in spite of the, the way things look today and the types of things that we've been talking about, the outlook of the Chalcedon Foundation of all of Dr. Rustuni's writings is one of hope and absolute certainty of the triumph of God's truth and his kingdom in time and in history. And, and Mark Rustuni has written about this extensively in the past year or so, that we are witnessing the collapse of humanism. And we have every reason to be hopeful because as we have seen throughout human history time and again, God has brought these sanctions and these results on the heads of people who have shaken their fist in his face. But we know, based on what his word assures us, that the eventual movement is the triumph of God's kingdom in this world and the destruction of evil. Exactly. And let me make a couple of recommendations for people who say, you sort of get what you're saying, but I, I need to understand it better. Well, back in 1965, when Rush Juni started the Chalcedon Foundation, shortly thereafter, he started producing a newsletter. And the essay that we referenced called The Myth of Consent is one of those early essays. And you can get the whole volume, three volumes actually, called Faith in Action. But specifically, the early part of volume one uh, has essays that go back to the 60s and the early 70s. And you're going to see that he saw the implications of what humanism would result in. So you read it now, and almost any essay, you're like, he could have written this yesterday, except Absolutely. he wrote it a long time before. So those were individual articles. So I would recommend that three-volume set. But then there's another book he produced somewhere along the line entitled Sovereignty. And it's a, what's one of those big fat books. And the, the beauty of Rush Dooney books is you don't have to read chapter two before you read chapter three. I mean, there's a progression, but the fact is these are individual essays. And so if you go to the table of contents or you go to the index and there are particular areas you are interested in, how I often use his books is to go, okay, this is what's happening now. What does he have to say about that? And you'd be surprised, and I think, Charles, you would verify this, that the more you understand of the way things should be, then it becomes more apparent the biblical prescriptions on how to achieve that end. So Rush Dooney's work, and obviously the Bible itself, will identify the problem, but it also provides the answer. We have to have the hope that says the work that we do now we may not see the fruits of it, but you know what? Our children's children will, and that's the hope of the future. So nothing that we do is in vain. And uh, the more you understand on the subject of sovereignty, I believe the more readily you will know, God, what do you want me to do? Absolutely. I totally agree. That book in particular is one of the most important that the Chalcedon Foundation has published since Dr. Rustuni passed away. It was published in 2007, and I I've referred to it time and time again, and um, Martin Selbretti wrote an excellent forward to that book, and that, along with the Faith in Action series that you referred to volumes, uh, are highly recommended. Maybe people wonder, why in the world are you so hyped up on Rush Duty and you quote <laughs> this guy all the time? Read Rush Dooney and you'll see. I mean, it, for people who, who have never read him and you're concerned about things in the church and society, like you said, you read some of this stuff and you... I, I mean, I can just imagine if I had not read him before now, I would read this with my mouth hanging open saying, there, there's something strange happening here. How could this guy have known this? 
How could he have seen this? He's just one of the few great scholars of the 20th century who took God's word absolutely as authoritative and proceeded to analyze everything based on that premise. Yeah, the implications of God's word. And let me say, for those who might be tired of hearing us quoting Dr. Rush Dooney, the beauty of what the Chalcedon Foundation started about and continues to be is to help people learn how to govern themselves, govern themselves according to God's word. So there are many people who will read Rush Dooney, and although we'd like them to contribute to Chalcedon, they don't necessarily. They just go out and do their thing. And there are plenty of people who are influenced by his writing without even knowing it. I think I've mentioned before that when I used to man the Chalcedon table at homeschool conventions and we would have his books and, you know, homeschool families would come up and say, who is this guy? And my answer would be, he's the reason you're here. And they're like, <laughs> what? And I go, yeah. He's the reason you're here. And so just because people don't know him don't mean that they have not benefited from his writing. And, you know, he went to be with the Lord 22, 21 years ago, I think it is now. And the beauty of what God allowed is that he's not here anymore, but we can still learn from him. And this is true of all the great men that God placed in church history from Calvin, from Luther, Knox, Augustine, and ultimately the gospel writers and the the writers of the epistles. But I think that what we should realize is that these are down payments. These are investments that we've been given and how foolish of us if we don't use them. Totally agree. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us again. You can always comment and I'm gotten a number of requests this week of people saying, do you think maybe you could deal with this particular subject? So I appreciate that because it's good to know what sort of things are on your mind and what are sort of things that you would like to maybe be directed towards a biblical perspective. So keep those uh, communications coming and you can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.